So Money episode 620, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Hillary Hendershot. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. September 1st, back to school, ladies and gentlemen. And we are not wasting any time here on So Money. We're getting right to your biggest, baddest money questions, getting schooled on personal finance. And with me today is my friend and co-host and previous So Money guest, Hillary Hendershot. If you missed her on the show, you don't want to miss this episode that she was on talking about her money journey as an entrepreneur and she is a CFP. It was so many episode 463. And I'm going to just talk a little about Hillary before I bring her on to the stage. But Hillary is the founder of Hillary Hendershot Wealth Management. It's a leading financial advisory firm for women. And I, I love her mission. It's really to get women motivated, their loved ones as well, to be financially empowered. She also hosts a podcast check it out. Profit Boss Radio. It's a weekly show. And she's been everywhere on TV. You may have seen her on ABC, NBC. She's constantly quoted in the media. We're really honored to have her on the show today to help me, because I need help sometimes getting through some of your very hard questions. Having someone with Hillary's expertise is invaluable. Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for that warm intro. I love so money. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we we love hearing that and we love you. And um, tell me, c- catch me up a little bit. I haven't seen you in probably a year. And even more, I haven't really, we were on the show um, almost 200 episodes ago. Whoa. I can't believe you've done 200 what? episodes since then. I, I don't even know what's going on either. But um, <laughs> tell me, I know you had a daughter, your business is expanding. Tell me everything. I did. I did. It's been a year of, there's this thing that birds do called molting where they lose all their feathers and replace (laughs) all of them. And, uh, you know, this year has been an unintentional molt. So in February, my husband and I, maybe it was March, my husband and I were uh, already looking for a new office. We share an office space. And so we we knew we were going to move the office. We got notice from our landlord. We were renting in San Jose and, um, and we got noticed that we had to move. And so I uh, purchased and moved to a new home in San Jose in 28 days. That includes getting pre-qualified for a mortgage and pre-approved, which we were not even in the application what? process. I didn't even know we were going to move. That's right? got to be a record. I think it is. I did a podcast episode about it because I was like, we just completed an incredible feat. I mean, we basically dropped a lot of things to make it happen. Um, and then um, this is kind of a personal thing, but it's amazing. We actually bought a house, the house that my husband was living in when I met him. He was, he was renting this house and it had this dreamy pool deck. And we would always talk about the pool deck. We would compare all pool decks to, it was like the pool deck. And, um, and we got it. It actually went on the market the day we got noticed that we had to move out of our rental. And so it was like, we call it Miracle House. 
I was going to say, do you believe in miracles? Because it's almost a little too perfect how things worked out. It was pretty crazy. So I did have a, so my daughter was born in 2016 and then we moved our office and our home in 2017. I've hired an associate advisor on my team. So I have two full-time employees now and we are building out systems to be able to work with a whole brand new set of client, the kind that my, you know, the folks who are listening to my podcast. And so I'm just, I'm building, creating, putting things in place. It's been, it's, it's from a, intellectual perspective, you know, it, it, your mind is full of so many things that it's like, it's a crazy time. It's hard to relax. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine. And, you know, burnout is probably something that you're acutely aware of. You, you know what? Sure. What do you do to, what do you do to chill out? So here's the revolutionary thing that I finally discovered this year. I was like, man, I never get to relax. Well, it's because I would always fill the calendar. So I started scheduling relaxing. <laughs> so there like are Oprah, days. Oprah does that Sunday. Although now she does super soul Sunday, but I think actually on Sunday, she's like, Staying in bed. And she does, she said that that was, she has intentional me time that she schedules. Put yourself first. Yeah. I mean, it it has to be, my workouts have to be on the calendar. My, I have literally blocks of time on the calendar that say do nothing. And I'm never doing nothing, by the way. I'm usually watching Netflix, but, um, but yeah. And and otherwise it doesn't. Well, that's doing nothing. Your mind. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's mindless stuff. Well, I'm not meditating. Put it that way. Yeah. Although who, who can meditate really? I mean. Special people, special people. Very special people. I, I give props to people who can meditate. I can't. Yoga people. Yeah. I can't do yoga either. (laughs) Uh, Hillary, we have a lot of amazing questions from, from our, our listeners. And I'm sure given that, you know, in the work that you do, none of this is going to surprise you, these questions, but, um, but maybe they will. Maybe we will surprise you. Let me pull up our questions. Um, here we have questions about relationships and debt and everything in between. Our first question comes from Scott. And I'll have you read the question because I think that's always fun. Give our guests, give our co-hosts a little bit of a, of a job on the show. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm putting it to work. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, So Scott is, it's kind of a confusing question. So he's actually writing on behalf of his son. So it's like he and his son have this agreement. His son is a recent college grad and his goal is to buy a home that he can live in for five to seven years and then resell in order to build his dream home. He currently lives at home and plans to for another six to eight months to build up his savings before moving out. He feels like renting would be a waste and Scott tends to agree. Can we convince them otherwise? Side note, both Scott and his son are enthusiastic Mint users. Oh. And it does say Scott's earning 60K a year. He's saved 15K so far. And he should be able to buy a home for one hundred and twenty to $150,000 because they live in Indiana. Yeah, not New York. That would be a part no. of Scott in New York. So it sounds like Scott, who is the dad, is trying to dissuade his son from... Moving out. Moving out and buying a house. Yeah, I think moving out and renting, I think. And first of all, my first reaction to this was the whole idea that he's going to live for five to seven years and then resell it to build his dream home. I thought, well, that is a really specific plan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I never had that plan. I think that, uh, I mean, certainly in your 20s, you're not buying your forever home. Um, Very few people, seldom people do. Not unless you're Justin Bieber. 
Right. And, and at that point, you probably don't have just one home. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it's a, a swell plan. Cause here's the thing, right? Hillary, I mean, let's say that he pursues this savings journey with the intention of buying this home and then his mind changes. What's the worst that's going to happen? He's got a lot of money in the bank. Right. Well, I think the only reason he would move out is for personal or emotional or social reasons. I mean, you know, kind of the thing that's on most 20 year olds, 21 year olds minds is maybe partying with their friends and dating and that living at home makes that kind of hard. So there's not a financial reason to move out. If he and his dad can live together and it works and they're all fine with it, then I mean, by all means, tighten the belt as tight as you can tighten it without sacrificing quality of life. One other thing to consider, some parents, when their adult children move back in to the house, is to charge them a little bit of rent. Totally reasonable. Like a housing fee. Um, I know a girlfriend of mine is doing this with her daughter who just graduated. And um, not because uh, the, the parent can't afford the mortgage on his or her own. It's just that they feel it's important for their child to really start to budget properly and realistically. And although it's probably going to be below market rent, it's still something. And it makes also the child feel like they're not getting a free ride, which psychologically can sometimes be beneficial. So depends on your relationship, I think. And um, your son may or may not need something like that. Like it sounds like his son is pretty financially focused. He's a focused guy. Oriented. You can't really tell, but I mean, the fact that dad wrote in about his son's life, you know, something says to me that, you know, dad is as much in the captain's chair as son. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I've kind of seen this before. And, you know, depending on the child's personality, you know, the, the, the parent can be wanting to do the right thing for, for the kid, but it, it has to be something that the kid wants. Right. Good, good point. That's why I have you on the show because you actually work with real people. You get in it. You roll your sleeves up. You see a lot of things. When is your book coming out? By the way, that needs to be. We need to. We need to. You know, happy more people like you sharing these perspectives because you have a very unique lens. Thank you. It is so on my list. <laughs> good. Amber asks, "What's your number one tip for successfully managing business finances?" I have an. I mean, I will say that I had a guest on the show recently, Mike Michalowicz, who wrote the book Profit First. Oh, did you have him on? Gosh, I was even going to mention that book. Oh, Mike is amazing. I actually met him in person recently. He's more incredible in person. He's got more books in the pipeline because this book just did so well because it's so true. I think that, and you could chime in here if you want, Hillary, but isn't it true that, you know, as business owners, it's like, especially I think as women too, we're... I don't know, we're conditioned to put everybody and everything first. And so we make the money, we're good at making the money, but then we reinvest it back into the business or we have expenses and we forget to pay ourselves. Yep. And and the point of profit first is to profit first, you know, expenses later. And then that actually, it will inherently get you to be smarter about your expenses. Because if you know every month you must pay yourself X dollars and, you know, a reasonable salary, be good to yourself, then it, it may all, it may suddenly make the other expenses that you have every month either seem unnecessary or uh, maybe you could find ways to save in areas that you weren't thinking about because you just weren't in the pay yourself first mentality. 
Sure. I mean, it provides clarity and boundaries. Uh, you know, your business is a selfish, ultimately a selfish entity that will take as much of you as you will give. And it can be fun to spend business revenues on marketing and promotions with sort of saucer eyes and big expectations about all the customers that are going to come rolling in. But if you, I mean, you don't really have a business you can sell until you're paying yourself a, a market wage. And so, you know, that's one thing is, uh, and not everyone's going to try to sell their business, but many of you should be planning to sell the business. That's how you build a really successful, profitable you know, business. And, and I, I mentioned profit first almost every time I speak in public to business owners, because I just think everyone should read that book. It's, mm-hmm. it's a mindset altering. It's, you, it's one of those, it's conceptual, but once you get it, you, you never go back. <laughs> Right. But you it, basically he wants you to create separate accounts for your profit. I think you should have another account for taxes and you feed the, you feed those accounts first so that come April 15th or October 15th you have Uncle Sam is paid. You, you're not in a situation where it's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm about to be in debt to the IRS," which is the one entity you can never be in debt to cuz if they don't like you, they'll go into your bank account and take your money. Mm-hmm. Um and um and you have a you have a profitable business and for for business owners owner income can be the same thing as profit that they're a little fuzzy in the, the the distinction between the two of them is a little fuzzy in the beginning but i thought a lot about this question and i, I really was going to mention that book so i'm glad that you brought it up i think focusing on sales focusing on profit is really the number one rule i also wrote down uh separate your business accounts from personal accounts yes yes that was something that i was going to bring up next but you beat me to it yeah, keep going. Keep going. Well, I guess it was so hard. Like your number one tip. Well, I, no, I, I can't do just one. It, you you have to keep your business accounts separate and you have to do clean accounting. When you have a business expense, use that card. When you have a personal expense, use that card. And um, and so you don't, you don't have this commingling of funds and tax treatment and you get to the end of the year. I mean, my, my, my tax appointment every year is so simple. <laughs> it's like, here you go. Everything's in two different buckets. There, there you go. <laughs> right. Here's, here's my so check. That means also being organized, you know, everything uh, that my accountant needs. And at this point, I just know because we've been working together for so many years, I have a folder in Dropbox, you know, where it's password protected and secure and all the paperwork goes in there for the business and for you know, the, 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 I guess Tim and I filing jointly. Um, yeah. So being really throughout the year, I think once a month doing a bit of your own personal tax bookkeeping will not only make your taxes simpler once taxes are due, but it also probably will reduce your bill because your accountant's not like emailing you every 10 minutes. Do you have this piece of paper? Where's this document, you know, and saving him time or her time saves you money. Yeah. I mean, it's like, do it as you go. So I have a little scanner app on my phone. And if I I need to, I'll take a picture of a receipt at a restaurant or at Office Max, and it automatically uploads to Evernote. So you can also configure it to upload to Dropbox. Um, But it just happens automatically. And that way, I don't have to deal with paper receipts. And I never, ever, ever, ever want to keep a shoebox or a file folder of paper receipts. It's something like fire I, fodder. You know, something I sidebar, something I recently learned when you go, let's say, to a business lunch in your town, you must keep a receipt. 
It is not allowed to be expensed unless the IRS sees a receipt. However, if you go and you travel somewhere and you have lunch on business somewhere and you use your business credit card or whatever, that you don't really need a receipt for. It's enough for there to be a credit statement you know, to back it up. But for other things um, that are local, that you're itemizing as like a business expense, you should just take a picture of the receipt and that will hopefully be um, sufficient evidence. Not only that, I'm sorry, but not only that, but you should write the name of the person yeah. that you had the meal with. And even you, if you can, what you what talked you discussed. about. I yep. know, I know, because not that you know, this is just in case you get audited, which, you know, it's a small risk, but it, if, is, if it does happen, you'll be thankful that you kept a really, really thorough paper trail. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. All right. We have a question here about money and marriage. One of my favorite topics. Ashley wants to know what to do because she is a saver and her fiance is a spender. We've heard this before. It happens. Opposites Could be attract. for trouble. <laughs> Could be, but it's so common, right? Does that mean everyone's doomed for divorce? I like to think not. No. Um, she says that he likes to spend uh, money. Well, that makes him a spender, but she's the breadwinner. And as they approach marriage, they're not married yet. How can they meet each other halfway and make sure that their finances, when it comes to retirement and owning a home and all that other good stuff, is in line with their values? So I'll start by just saying that it is common for couples to have differing views on money. And it's common for one to be a spender and one to be a categorical saver. That in the beginning can be sometimes exhilarating and interesting for each person because like, as I've learned, you know, savers like to live vicariously through spenders and spenders find security in being with savers. But if you don't establish common ground and align your goals and your values, trouble ensues and arguments ensue. So I think the first thing you want to do is rather than, you know, kind of attack each other for their, your differences and point fingers is to find where you are aligned. What are your common goals? What do you want to do in the next 12 months, one to three years, 10 years, um, together? What do you want to build? What do you want to financially work towards? And that can be your roadmap. And I think that once you establish that and you both have a, like a mutual respect for these things and a mutual commitment to these things, then I would, I would like to think 
and correct me if I'm wrong, that sometimes our bad behaviors correct themselves, right? Because you're conscious now of what your goals are. And it's not just about you anymore. It's about this common shared goal ambition. And um, it almost would feel icky, right? If you're like out there spending on a tear, when really you know that the goal is to save, let's say $10,000 by the end of the year to be able to afford a down payment on a home. Um, so that's the first step I would say. You t- Hillary, you fill in the blanks. <laughs> I have seen it all when it comes to spending and saving habits. And you might be surprised, but I definitely have met over savers. So people who just white knuckle their money. And, uh, and so I think in this question, we're assuming that the saver is the virtuous person and the spender is that, like you said, the bad behavior person. And I, I wouldn't assume that, although it, it's probably true. I, I also That's wouldn't fair. care. I like what you say. I like that. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's yeah there's like what we say about money like there's the conversation about money and then there's the actual results and i think you hit the nail on the head with the goals conversation i would not get attached to the titles saver spender i think in a marriage if you start to say that and it becomes true between the two of you i'm the saver he's the spender then that is a divide And it isn't true that if I were to cut you open and sort of look underneath your skin, there would be a stamp that says saver or spender. It just, it it isn't true that those traits are natural or genetic. You created them based on something and you can change them if you want to. And a lot of times those spenders don't yet have the part of their brain working that's dealing with future consequences of their actions. And so that could be hard to deal with in a marriage. But I think you're you're spot on when you say that if you can get two people aligned around a goal, it's you know, it's clear, it's black and white. What's it gonna take to get to ten thousand dollars in that savings account this year? Well, it's about four hundred and eighty bucks a month. Okay, we have to save that or we're not gonna make it. So um, you know, uh, and, and then, and then I guess the person should be free to s- s- spend if he wants to spend above and beyond that savings target. Right. Having your own account, I think is paramount, right? Because I, I don't know. I just feel like there are some couples that can make it work with just one shared account, but more often than not, uh, that creates struggle. And even over little stupid things like wanting to go get your hair blown out and it's $40 and it's like, I have to now like talk about this really. <laughs> and I, I work hard for my money. Um, when you have your own account separate from the joint account and you equally know, you know, you each have like sort of an equal percentage that's going into that account. You can do whatever. It's a fun account. Do whatever you want with it. And it creates autonomy, maintains autonomy. So many of us are getting married later in life. We're coming to marriage with our own all kinds of habits already installed. (laughs) Right. I think it just makes it a little simpler, a lot simpler. And so I think that is something to also consider as you get married to have three buckets, mine, yours, and Hours, Ashley. And I want to also bring up, this is actually a great segue to talk about um, some new data that's come out that really, I think, uh, backs up a lot of what we've been talking about. So everyone knows I'm a brand ambassador with Chase Slate. And Chase Slate did a new credit outlook survey for 2017. And they found that um, they covered a lot of territory, but specifically to money and relationships, they found that 
Um, only 1% of women, Hillary, are willing to discuss finances on a first date. Men are more open to, dis- to discussing them at 15%. Do you find this to be true in your line of work? Do you think this rings true? Wow. Well, gosh, I, I probably have a really unique view. I mean, if people call me, the first thing I ask them about is their money. I, so I, I don't know that I... Ha- and I... I've never talked about money on a first date, although I do remember in one relationship talking about money, a person flat out asked me how much money I made, I think on the third date. And I was kind of surprised, but also refreshed. Um, But that data doesn't totally shock me. Although I don't, I mean, what would the, so they're saying a man is willing to share how much he makes or how much he has in savings. I think it was just a broad sort of, you know, discuss finances, you know, and and so that could be your salary, but it could also be your credit score. It could be, it could be financial like news. You know, I think just money can be really taboo, whether you're talking about your own money or just generally how much things cost can make people feel uncomfortable. Sure. Um, the survey I bet also people found- are more willing. I bet people are more willing to talk about assets than they are about debt, right? Talk about the positives versus yes. the negatives. Um, but bringing, mentioning debt, you know, they said they found that when people are dating, debt is a big deal breaker. High credit card debt specifically is a deal breaker where over a third of Americans say that credit card debt is a reason to think less of a significant other. Mm, I wonder how much that leads to, uh, white lies. <laughs> oh, financial. What is it called? Um, uh, Financial infidelity. Um, infidelity, right, 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 right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, net worth equals self worth sometimes. And if your net worth is negative, um, you know, not only are you feeling perhaps less than, but we, pro- you know, we, you can project that onto others um, when you find out somebody is uh, in debt. I think that. Like you talked about earlier, you know, just because you're a quote unquote spender doesn't mean that you make that you're a bad person or that you make consistently bad choices. Right. Right. Um, These labels sometimes can get us pigeonholed for the wrong reasons. You know, I remember having a negative net worth. It was hard. It was tough to feel like I'm kind of a failure in this world, but it's not true. It's just bad planning and sort of you're heading your net worth in the opposite direction that you want to. And, you know, I just wonder if, if I was on a date and I lied to someone about my debt and then maybe, maybe it would be, turn out to be a good thing. Like I would really work hard to get the debt paid off before I had to come clean. You know what? I see it both ways though. I see people shying from talking about their financial blunders and their debt in the early stages of a relationship. Similarly, I find with women too, we, if we are really successful and we make a lot of money or we're very successful at work, that can also be a pain point to bring up because we don't know how that's going to be interpreted, right? Am I going to be a threat? Am I going to be seen as too ambitious and therefore couldn't possibly have the time or the focus for a relationship. Um, so you know, it's like lose-lose sometimes. Well, that certainly is your area of expertise. Uh, you know, I can say from my perspective, I work with lots of millionaire and multimillionaire divorcees and widows. And um, when they go to date, uh, they find that 
it's a requirement that the person that they are dating have his own financial success because there's just such a mismatch in terms of um, uh, perceived power, uh, resources. You know, they don't know if he's looking at them opportun. He's looking at her opportunistically. Uh, you know, and so it's like they're they're kind of on they're kind of private detectives in the beginning looking for symptoms of financial success. <laughs> <laughs> wow, financial sleuths. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think this all just tells us that money is very mental, right? It's very much uh, emotional and, and psychological and, and it's not just clear cut black and white. We come really, to the table with, yeah. It's so emotional. <laughs> preconceived notions. I know. Well, good luck to you. Uh, I want to just say that don't let your differences dissuade you. You know, really like you're in the same boat as many couples, Ashley. And I think I would hope that um, you and your husband, your future husband have at least the ability to communicate and and be really open and honest with each other about your money. And that's really, that's 90% of it. All right. We have a question here from Nitu. You want to take this one away, Hillary? Absolutely. Nitu is a 35-year-old female and she's super confused about how to get into investing in stocks. She says, how do I make some of money work for me? What's a good place to start and what do I start with? So she's never invested in stocks. I no. would say a 401k or an IRA to start something, you know, like that, that specifically catering to retirement. Oh, it's funny. You're, it's funny that you, um, that your answer would be about what account type. I thought she meant what stocks to pick. Oh, well, we don't pick stocks on this show. And, and so I will just say that like, we're not, I think that there are other podcasts out there that could give you better advice as far as like the types of stocks to pick. Although if you want to take the reins on that one, Hillary, I, that's not my expertise, but it could be yours. So tell us, I'll tell you like the sort of approach and maybe you could give us some of the, if you have any recommendations um, in terms of I, how to approach stocks. I can give some broad strokes. Okay. Um, so as a, as a financial advisor, I have to be fairly careful what I say publicly, but I'm confident that I can say to you from a strategy perspective, there are really two ways to invest in stocks. First of all, I don't think that you should reinvent the wheel. For most people, unless you're doing it professionally full-time, choose mutual funds or ETFs where someone else is actually packaging stocks together for you. So you're automatically diversified. And then, you know, there are really evidence-based ways to invest. And you've probably heard of index funds or passive investing uh, this is really the methodology that the company Vanguard was born on. John Bogle really went to market with this idea of not trying to beat the market. He was laughed off Wall Street in the beginning. And now uh, now his ideas and his methodology is really being bought into by investment professionals and investors everywhere. I myself, as a, as a company that specializes in working with women, have an account solution headed to... We'll, we'll be live with it within eight weeks after the airing of this episode uh, where we can work with investors uh, who have 25,000 or more to invest. And, you know, you really can get a professional to do that for you. So, uh, you know, I'm, I can't mention specific, you know, providers, but I will say there are evidence-based ways. This, this kind of the intellectuals in the industry are really agreeing that this indexing methodology is best. And then, so there are people who will kind of do it for you. You can delegate it or outsource it and I'll be offering it very soon. Right. I agree hundred percent with that advice. And, and as far as like how to get into these sorts of 
vehicles, you can work with a financial advisor. You can also go online and just, you know, directly buy them on the market. You can go to uh, Vanguard, but you can also go to a platform like Wealthfront or Betterment, LFS. There's a number of ways to get in to those kinds of investments. Just keep in mind that, you know, wherever you go, there are varied fees and you want to do the math a little bit to figure out, you know, where does it make the most sense to park your money based on the sort of service fees and the, um, you know, the, the, the fee that has nothing to do with, uh, the investments themselves, but rather the service that's providing them. There's always some sort of cost associated. So, do your homework and do sort of as much as you can on apples to apples comparison. But yeah, indexing, exchange traded funds. Warren Buffett loves index funds. So last I checked, he's pretty rich. Warren Buffett is on the record saying most investors should, should choose indexing. You know, Warren Buffett himself doesn't do that inside Berkshire Hathaway, but he's definitely on record saying folks like you and me really should... Uh, if, if we're not going to do it full time, uh, we should really just um, leave it to the professionals. Yes. Okay. We have one last question here from Frank and um, I'll, I'll read it off quickly. He has a Roth IRA in his name, Hillary. It's got an average return of 7%, which is pretty good, right? It is. He's planning on leaving it to his wife. She's 15 years younger than he is. He's 69. She's 54. He, Frank says he doesn't need the money, but his wife will need it in the future. Well, probably because she's going to live longer as well. And she wants to pay off all of their mortgages. Now, Frank has a home HELOC that has variable interest rate. Um, he read that there is a plan to raise the rate over the next two years. Should he use some of his Roth money to pay off the HELOC or free up the payment and reinvest it in his wife's brokerage account. So this seems like, does it come down to just the math? What do you think? Well, it's complex because you know you have the future transfer of assets from him, who's obviously more financially sophisticated to her. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying obviously, he's just, he's the one asking, asking the question. Like, I, mean, I guess it's possible she could be an expert. I just would think then the, the question would come from her. But so I describe this in, two phases. Uh, that paying off your mortgage is one level of being financially conservative. So we all have to be conservative in our financial lives. That just means spending less than you make. And, um, and, it, and a lot of people think that paying off their mortgage is a great thing. In my opinion, one level of sophistication up from that is using what we call arbitrage. And what that means is borrowing other people's money to make money at a higher rate. And at this point, 1.75% is much lower than the expected return. That's why he told you the average return inside his Roth IRA is 7%. And now his question is, well, but our interest rates going to go up. So there's a whole nother level of complexity because this home equity line could increase its interest rate. And so arbitrage may become less possible. Arbitrage is simply taking an asset from one place where it's worth uh, something and moving it to another place where it's worth more. That's all arbitrage is. Um, 
And so I do think he's right that interest rates will go up. We don't know how quickly though. I mean, I don't, his, his, his statement that they'll go up over the next two years by at least 1.75% over the next two years, like the federal reserve doesn't publish that information. They don't make that information public. Um, I would so speculation. Yeah, it, it really is speculation. I would go to his bank. A lot of times the banks will lock home equity lines. So what they'll do is they'll make it a fully amortized loan instead of an interest only loan, which most home equity lines are interest only. And so they'll just lock it where it's at. I mean, that does mean he can no longer write checks on it. It does mean, you know, he can't take more cash out. But if, if he wants to be totally conservative, I would just go ask them to lock and fully amortize the loan so that he can lock in that interest rate. Um that, I think that would be my recommendation to him. Yeah. And then he can plan better because he doesn't have to sort of follow this moving target called interest rates and then, you know, at least um, have more peace at night and be able to, I think, yeah, that's a great idea. I didn't know you could actually ask your bank to do that, which really the big tip here is when you need something, ask for it, you know, just because you're not getting a letter in the mail. That's like, hi, we're bank of whatever. And we could lock your, your HELOC. We could amortize your HELOC. Um, does just because they're not pronouncing it doesn't mean that they may not be able to help you out with that. So always ask for what you need and they may not have even have a program for it, but they'll work with you. And, um, you know, you can't lose by asking. Yeah. I mean, for some people, the idea of paying off a mortgage, I mean, I just took a million dollar mortgage. The idea of paying that off is kind of like pie in the sky. But for some people, they're really throwing money at the mortgage. And the only problem once you pay off the mortgage is that you've got all this money. And in Silicon Valley, where I live, you know, you're talking about a million, a million and a half dollars in a house that you can't spend, touch or access. And that's a lot of money. So there's value in having that home equity line and even more value in some in a lot of cases of just not paying it off, just save the difference. And you actually end up with a higher net worth over time. Yeah, that's very refreshing. And I think that there is something to be said about being nervous or anxious about having a mortgage and so much of managing your money in your best capacity and way is doing it so that you don't have stress. Right. And if that's going to alleviate your stress, then there's something, there's some value to that, but it's not, don't do it because you think you're necessarily making the smarter kind of accounting decision. (laughs) Right. Agreed. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) All right, Hillary, thank you so much. Again, check out episode 463, where you can learn a lot more about Miss Hendershot and her finances and quite the journey you've been on just as a little tease. Um, But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us so many great strategies and insights. Um, Your show is again, Profit Boss Radio. Where else can we find you? You can find me on the web at HillaryHendershot.com. Hillary has one L. Hendershot has two T's. It is phonetic. <laughs> and um, <laughs> if you go there, there's a cool uh, there's a cool free giveaway that talks about, uh, that helps you figure out what your money mindset is and what impact that might Ooh. be having on your finances. I'm going to go take that quiz. Thank you again. And we hope you have a great weekend, Hillary and everyone. Hope your weekend is so money. Money.